Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. I know I just recorded a podcast um, a couple of days ago. Well, you know what they say, it never rains, but it pours. So now, um, a few days later, here I am (laughs) recording another one. And the reason for that is that I hope to begin recording this uh, each week on Sundays. Now, at Mount Angel, um, uh, I don't remember what day I was doing it. It was a, a weekday. I'm pretty sure, but um, the reason for that was because I was very blessed and fortunate not to have any classes at 9 o'clock in the morning, any day of the week. Uh, now at St. Patrick's, all of my classes are in the morning, <laughs> which actually that is also a blessing, a uh, different blessing. Um, so now my, my, anyway, my afternoons are free during the week, but I need that time to study and I'm trying to organize my week, um, my schedule in such a way that my Sundays are free. You know, Sunday, the Lord's Day, um, really ought to be free in order to pray, um, to worship the Lord. So anyway, my hope is that each week on Sunday, I will, I will have the time to record this podcast. And uh, I wanted to get started with that today. Now, this podcast is called The Morning Walk. Last time I recorded it, um, it was an afternoon walk. Today, not only is it the afternoon, but I'm not even walking. It's, it is an afternoon drive podcast. Uh, hopefully still within the spirit of the podcast, even though perhaps the title is a little, uh, a little off. But I have to drive right now from San Jose back to Menlo Park, where the seminary is. I, uh, well, I went over to San Jose, which is about 20, 25 minutes away, in order to assist at a solemn uh, Latin High Mass this morning at Five Wounds Portuguese National Church. Five Wounds, uh, named after the Five Wounds of Jesus, the Cinco Chagas, uh, I think as they say in Portuguese, I don't know, my Portuguese is not so great, <laughs> but I will tell you, wow, this is a beautiful church really really a beautiful place and it was exactly what I needed today to be able to to come worship the Lord in his temple the temple of glory uh, beautiful music you know chants polyphony they had a whole squadron of, of young altar servers in their cassocks and surplices um, it reminded me a lot of my adopted home parish in Portland Oregon St. Stephen's Parish where also on a typical Sunday, you know, they have 10 or 20 altar servers <laughs> all out there in their cassocks and surpluses with their, with the torches and, uh, they've got the thoroughfare and, and everything, beautiful music and the mass celebrated facing east. The priest and the people are all united facing the same direction to pray to the Lord. So every, you know, all of these things coming together really create an amazing atmosphere of prayer. Um, They make it so easy to pray. And, you know, there are all kinds of arguments, liturgical arguments, um, good arguments, you know, I I think they're credible arguments for having things this way. For example, celebrating the Mass uh, ad orientem, facing the East, okay, or preserving Latin in the liturgy, using our, our liturgical language, these different things. I think there are a lot of good arguments for them. But to me, uh, maybe the best argument is simply 
experiential, you know, what is the experience of, it's almost like a phenomenological approach. Okay. What's the experience of prayer? Like, uh, when we assist at a mass that has these elements. And for me, it's like being able to breathe just so easily, you know, it's like, mm, if you've ever gone from like a city where the air is polluted, it's dirty, uh, it's noisy, it's crowded, and you go someplace where it's just wide open space, clean air, and it's like, ah, oh, I can just take a deep breath, I can breathe easy. To me, um, that's a, uh, maybe a good analogy for what it's like. When I get to go to a parish like this and, and assist at the Mass, um, celebrated with the fullness of our liturgical traditions, I really, really appreciate that opportunity. Today, also, I was very, very blessed to be able to meet up with a friend of mine, Brother Dustin of the Most Holy Eucharist. Uh, he's a Carmelite brother here in San Jose, Mount St. Joseph Monastery. Um, we have a long history together. He and I were seminarians together at Mount Angel. We met my second year, which was his first year. Together, we both discerned to enter the Carmelites. Uh, we both fell in love with St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross. We were both very influenced by a particular teacher we had, Father Thomas of the Trinity, a very holy Carmelite friar. So we entered Carmel together. We were postulants together in the same class, entered the same day. We, made, we received the habit on the same day. We were in the same novitiate class. Um, Brother Dustin, of course, ultimately discerns to remain in the Carmelites, whereas I discerned the Lord was calling me elsewhere to return back to my diocese. But, um, you know, everything happens for a reason in God's providence. There's no coincidence in God's providence. So just about two years ago, I discerned to leave San Jose, go home to Portland. And now I, yeah, I never would have expected at the time that I would end up living here in the Bay Area again. Uh, because, you know, when I discerned to go back, we, my diocese, we didn't have any guys studying down here at St. Patrick's Seminary. And I didn't even see it on the horizon as a possibility. But uh, Archbishop Sample now, is, as I mentioned in my last podcast, he decided to send me here to study at St. Patrick's. So now I'm living again in the Bay Area, just 20 minutes away from San Jose. I can go over and visit Mount St. Joseph, um, you know, any, anytime I like. And uh, I'm also close here to Five Wounds Church, where I, I used to go as a postulant on our day out sometimes. Uh, we would go to Five Wounds for the Latin Low Mass during the week. Or even on Sundays, when we had permission from our novice master, we would go for the Latin High Mass uh, at 12.30 p.m. So it's a blessing. It really is a blessing. An, an unlooked-for, unexpected blessing to be back in this area again. And uh, a big part of that is being able to meet up again with Brother Dustin. You know, a great grace of the of the apostolate is being able to have good spiritual friendships. Very, very necessary for us as seminarians, as religious, to have these good friendships. Um, you know, good friends who can help to support us, who can help, in a sense, you could say maybe to balance us out. You know, we've all got different gifts, different charisms, different perspectives. But just to, to know other guys 
um, who are fighting the same fight, who are, who are in the language of St. Teresa, who are walking the way of perfection. Other people who are on fire with zeal for the Lord, um, on fire for the faith, who have the, the desire to be great pastors, to be good shepherds of the flock, to be good friends of Jesus. Again, like St. Teresa says, since our Lord has so few friends, let the few that he has be good ones. You know, it is, it's, um, it's invaluable to have these good spiritual friendships who can inspire us, encourage us, be models for us, really, you know, in ways, maybe in some way that I'm lacking. Uh, I have a friend, the brother, I can look to and see, wow, he's really living, living out the faith in this way, in a way that I'm not. So um, he's making up for what I don't have, and he's inspiring me to try to live more in that respect, to be holy, um, and in the same way, hopefully, maybe I have some gift he doesn't have, which I can help to, to draw out from him. So, you know, this is the great blessing of uh, being in the church. <laughs> this is why it just doesn't work to be spiritual and not religious. It just doesn't work, man. You've got to be got to be within the church. And that really brings me to what I, I wanted to talk about today. Um, you know, we're certainly we're all aware of the scandals right now that are taking place in the church that are being revealed, coming to light. I've been thinking a lot about the words, the prophetic words of our Lord, that everything that is done in secret will be proclaimed from the housetops. You know, well, that's really what we're seeing in the church, and. Uh, we shouldn't lament the fact that it's coming to light. You know, I think maybe um, if not at the moment, then certainly in the past, there's been kind of an attitude in the church of secrecy. Um, a desire to preserve the good image, the good name of the church, which in itself Okay, in itself, that's not a bad desire, but um, the problem with that kind of desire is that it can lead to try to sweep things under the rug, you know? <laughs> These kind of, I mean, the scandals that are coming to light today are so much worse because they weren't exposed and dealt with at the time. They were hidden away, they're allowed to fester. You know, and those who were responsible were allowed to continue in positions of authority and power and put others at risk for years and years rather than rather than being dealt with as they should have been at, at the beginning. You know, one of our professors here at St. Patrick's, who will go unnamed, okay, I don't want to uh, implicate him in anything, but uh, a certain professor is of the opinion, he said to us in class, that Really, the church's response to this kind of thing should be immediate and swift <laughs> excommunication. And that's, that doesn't come from a place of um, like retributive justice or a desire for revenge. But you know, excommunication isn't permanent, uh, as some people might, might wrongly expect or think. But the point of excommunication is like to shock somebody into realizing, you know, what you're doing is contrary to the faith. Like you're you're not in the lifeboat right now. You're out in the in the sea. You're out in the waters. You're gonna get swept away. So you gotta get back in the boat. You know, excommunicate. Like if you're excommunicated, um, you can be received back into the church. But you have to sincerely repent of your sins. You have to do penance, and uh, 
the lifting of the excommunication has to come from the Holy Father himself, come from the Pope. So it's, it's in a sense, it's, it's difficult. It requires something of you. It requires sincere repentance. Um, but, it's, you know, it's, it's strong medicine, but it is medicinal. It's medicinal in its purpose to shock somebody into realizing whether you uh, meant to or thought about it or not, by your actions, you have put yourself out of communion with the church. So now you're going to have to do something about it to come back into communion. Like, we want you to come back, but you've got to want it. You've got to work for it. You know, so I think, he, I think he's right. Uh, I'm on board with that as well. But anyway, the situation we're in in the church right now is not good. Last night, a, a letter was published by Archbishop Viganò, the former papal nuncio to the United States of America. The nuncio is like the, the Pope's ambassador, okay? Every country has a papal nuncio. So Archbishop Viganò, I met him once my first year in seminary at Mount Angel. He came to our seminary benefit dinner. It was Mount Angel's 125th anniversary as a seminary. So he was invited, he came, he gave a speech. I remember I was very impressed with him. I was impressed with his uh, spirit of humility, it seemed to me, and, and his real kind of spirit of, of prayerfulness. He seemed like a holy man, holy priest. My archbishop spoke very highly of him. Anyway, last night I saw that he published this letter. And in the letter, Archbishop Viganò says, you know, I'm an old man now. I'm near the end of my life. I want to go before the Lord with a clear conscience. I, I haven't said anything to the media before this because I was holding out hope that within the hierarchy of the church, um, you know, my brother bishops would find within themselves the moral courage necessary to come forward to speak the truth, the fullness of the truth. But uh, you know, now at, at the end, nearing the end of my life. I have no choice but to come forward and to tell everything that I know. So he wrote this detailed letter. You can find it online, Archbishop Viganò, an 11-page letter. In it, he describes and he names names of uh, the bishops and highly placed authorities in the church who knew all about the actions of Card former Cardinal McCarrick, uh, who's been really at the center of this most recent kind of storm of scandal was for decades uh, abusing minors as well as seminarians, his own seminarians in his diocese, was allowed to not only continue in ministry but to rise through the ranks all the way to the dignity of cardinal of the church. Archbishop Viganò details all of these other bishops, uh, the sec two secretaries of state, of the Holy See, he even implicates present Holy Father, Pope Francis, as having known about this. And our Archbishop Viganò, he says, um, you know, if nothing else, sure, surely others told him, but if nothing else, I told them. I told them about this. He has records, he says, of letters that he sent to these bishops, of conversations he had with them. And yet now, Several of them publicly have denied knowing anything about Cardinal McCarrick prior to the most recent uh, investigations having come to light. 
So it's a time of, of great confusion in the church, of scandal for many of the faithful. Among their number, I, I have to include myself in, in one sense of the word, you know. We can, we can understand scandal in two major ways. Um, it's kind of the, maybe the common understanding of being scandalized, uh, of being, you know, shocked horrified by somebody else's conduct, by their behavior. Or also there's the gospel sense of the word scandalized. Um, it comes from the Greek word skandalon, which is like a stumbling block. Something, you know, that uh, you hit it with your foot and you stumble. And maybe it makes you fall. Okay. So we never, we never want to allow ourselves to be scandalized in the gospel sense of the word. Skandalon. We should never be scandalized in that sense by the existence of evil within the church because there are two two concomitant realities in the church held together in a kind of a t tense togetherness <laughs> they're, they're inseparable as long as well until the consummation of the age you know as our Lord says until the second coming of Jesus when the church will be revealed in all her splendor as a spotless bride of Christ God will separate the sheep from the goats uh, at the final general judgment of all mankind. Until then, we have mixed together in the church the wheat and the weeds. And as, as Jesus said to the apostles, um, it will remain that way until the end of time, until the final harvest. So right now, there's the spiritual, the supernatural reality of the church, and there's the human reality. The supernatural reality, the church is... Christ's spotless bride and uh, yeah, I think I'm a little embarrassed I don't remember for sure if this was the reading today or not but if it wasn't today it was, it was recently it was a, the, the, that great reading from St. Paul um, where he describes Christ washing the church so that she's free of any spot or wrinkle or blemish and he can take her to himself uh, in fact, I think it was today. Ephesians 5. Yes, it was today. It was today because that's the great reading where St. Paul is saying, uh, Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. He's drawing out this great great analogy of marriage, um, which, which is really the best analogy we have for the love between Christ and the church. Christ loves the church. Christ loves the church. She is his bride. She is our mother. Our rector today at the seminary, in his homily this morning, he spoke very, very beautifully um, about what our response as seminarians and, at, and just as faithful Catholics ought to be to these scandals. And uh, kind of dovetails with, with what I was thinking, saying just now about, we can be scandalized in one sense, but we should not allow ourselves to stumble or to be, in a sense, drawn off the path by the horror, the rightful indignation, and maybe anger we have. Uh, Father Schultz, our rector, said in the homily this morning, he said, you know, when we see a family, when we see a situation where a father has abandoned his family, okay, or where a father has grievously failed failed his wife, failed his children, he's left them, he's abandoned them. We don't turn on the wife. We 
don't turn on the mother. We don't reject the family. We love the mother all the more because of what she suffered. We love the children all the more. And we, we desire, we're impelled by something deep within us to work even harder to try to, to support them, to protect them, to make up for how their father has failed them. Father Schultz told us as seminarians this morning, that should be our response. That should be our response to these scandals in the church. These men, these consecrated men, have failed us. These fathers, they've abdicated their positions as spiritual fathers. They've totally compromised the spiritual and moral authority that was given to them by Christ. Because they allowed themselves to fall so grievously to sin. You know, and I'm, I'm reminded as well at the other homily I heard today, not, not at our seminary chapel, but just now at Five Wounds Church, where the priest reminded us of the words of Our Lady of Fatima when Mary appeared to the three shepherd children in Portugal in 1917. She gave them a vision of hell, this terrifying vision of hell. And she told the children at Fatima to pray fervently and to fast and make sacrifices because so many souls were going to hell. And Our Lady told them, more souls are dragged into hell because of sins of the flesh than for any other reason. Wow, that should give us pause. That should really give us pause. So I'm, uh, I'm reminded of that today as well when we see this scandalous behavior of our priests, our bishops, even cardinals of the church. And now with Archbishop Viganos' revelation last night in his letter that this corruption, this culture of secrecy and, and, and cover-up may extend even to the very highest levels of the Catholic Church. These men have failed us. Our fathers in the faith have failed us. But our response must not be to reject our mother, to turn on the mother, or to leave the family. No, no. Love must impel us to do all we can to try to make up for the failures of our fathers. Love must impel us to take care of the children who have been hurt by this, to be good shepherds of the flock. And we must not be afraid, you know, that the great legacy that Pope John Paul II left for us, he was constantly exhorting the church, do not be afraid, be not afraid echoing the words of Jesus to the apostles, be not afraid. We must not be afraid of the questions that the faithful will ask, of the righteous anger, the indignation, which stems from the deep hurt, the suffering that so many are feeling, that I'm feeling. We must not be afraid. Our hope lies in God. You know, uh, an article I read recently, a 
maybe a, a week or two ago, as, this, as these scandals first began to unfold, I read an article online where this writer was reminding us, you know, we, we were not baptized in the name of the Pope and the bishops and the cardinals, okay? We're not going to spend eternity in contemplation of the beatific vision of the Pope, all right? We're going to spend eternity in contemplation and union with God, who is love itself. And we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our faith lies in God. Our faith lies in God. And our faith is in the church as Christ's spotless bride. The psalmist tells us, put not your trust in princes, in mortal men, in whom there is no hope. Rather, my hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. So, these are just a few, a few reflections that I have. This is a time of great trial, um, of great suffering and sorrow for the church, for our mother, for her children, for each one of us. Yet, I think also this is a time of hope. The reason I can say that is because uh, I have been, I've been reading the book of the prophet Jeremiah for my, my prophets class on Tuesday. I have, to, I have to finish it by Tuesday, so anyway, I haven't gotten to the end yet, okay? <laughs> but I've been reading this book with the prophet Jeremiah, and there are really a lot of parallels between the state of Israel in Jeremiah's day, the state of the church in our day, you know? God keeps warning Israel through Jeremiah again and again and again, clean up your act, stop worshiping idols, Stop mistreating the widows and the orphans. <laughs> you know, stop. Just come back to the covenant. Come back to me. If you don't, well, then there's going to be a great trial in store for you. He, he warns them, you know. I will tear down my temple. I will tear down my own temple. Jerusalem will be laid waste. It will be a heap of ruins. The Babylonians will invade the promised land. And they will carry away the nation of Judah as slaves into exile. And despite all of God's warnings, you know, he lets things go absolutely as far as he possibly can. But there's a certain point at which justice cannot allow evil to go any further. And so God makes good on his warning. The Babylonians invade. Judah is taken into exile. Jeremiah watches this happen. You know, the prophet sees what is happening and yet and yet God promises never to abandon his people see he uses this foreign nation the nation of pagans the Babylonians to chastise Israel in a sense like to, to wake them up to shock them to show them like the path that you're on you're not on the right path you like like this priest I was talking about mentioned you know you're with the with the um, penalty of excommunication you're not in the lifeboat. <laughs> You're out in the water. Get back in the boat. This is like what God's saying to Israel. Okay? There's a great deal of suffering and lamentation that is the result, but it ultimately it is medicinal in its purpose. It's to say, look, you gotta get back in the boat. Come back to the covenant. You will be saved. And you know, when 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 God called Jeremiah, he said to him, I'm appointing you, my prophet, to the nation of Israel, a prophet to tear down and to uproot, to rebuild and to plant. 
See, so as God tears down, uproots because of the deep corruption, the corruption, the sickness of sin, which has taken hold of his, his chosen people, nevertheless, he promises to plant and to rebuild. He promises that he will never leave his people. Christ will never leave his bride, the church, because he has chosen her for his own. He has preserved her spotless and inviolate from all eternity. And at the end of time, at the consummation of the ages, the church will be revealed in the brilliance and the splendor of her glory. And Christ will unite her to himself for all time. Until then, we have to persevere, knowing that there are weeds among the wheat, there are goats among the sheep. We have to do our very, very best to remain among the sheep, to remain in the fold. We have to try to live our state in life to the very best that we can. For us who are seminarians, who are religious, Brother Dustin and I were talking a lot about this today, encouraging each other um, in how best to live this out, you know. We, as men of the church, we have to do penance, we have to fast. We have to pray and pray fervently for the church and we have to do all that we can to prepare ourselves now to be those good fathers the good shepherds that the people of god need not to be like the hirelings who flee when the wolves come but to be good shepherds who are bold who are brave who have fortitude and courage to speak the truth to follow the covenant to do what god desires and since God has so few friends, then let us few be good ones. My brothers and sisters, please pray for me. Know that I am praying for you. I'm praying for the whole church. And uh, just to conclude this podcast, since I just arrived back at St. Patrick's, let's pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Our Lady, Mother of the Church, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.